It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It's no secret that the idea of the American dream, and more importantly, the reality, is under threat. It's become extremely difficult to prosper in this country without an education. We shouldn't have everybody in our society getting a four-year college degree. We don't need that. And we need to develop pathways for people to build good lives that one. I think the two things to say are we should make it easier for people to get bachelor's degrees, but the bigger thing is we should make it easier to have a good life in this country if you don't have a bachelor's degree. The New York Times writer David Leonhardt has spent a decade diving into America's economics history for his latest book. Ours Was the Shining Future teases apart all the factors making it so hard for Americans today to make economic progress. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. In his book and in this talk, Leonhardt explains how federal policy choices, shifts in corporate culture, and the decline of unions have all contributed to stagnancy in the middle and lower classes. David Rubenstein, the co-chair of the Carlyle Group investment firm and a longtime businessman, interviews Leonhardt about the book's key points and his inspiration for writing it. Here's Rubenstein. Before we get into this one book, I just want to ask you, you wrote an e-book at one point. Uh, the essence of it was, uh, here's the deal, how the U.S. can solve its deficit and spur growth. Yeah. So in one sentence or two, can you tell us how we can solve the deficit problem and spur growth? <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, we should raise taxes and cut spending. <laughs> and I will, I will expand on that. So not carried um, interest. <laughs> not carried interest. <laughs> we, should, we should eliminate the carried interest loophole as well. Really? Yes. I'm so, okay. Um, first of all, let me start by saying how incredibly grateful I am to David, who's one of our master interviews. And I would also say thank you. Thank you but uh, he came in at three this, he got here at three this morning. So he had some flight delays. So if he's a little bit off, it's because of that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. But go ahead. How are we um, going to solve it? Uh, I think the key things that we need to do to solve the deficit um, are, um, one, to recognize that taxes, high-end taxes are historically low. If you look over the course of history, high-end taxes on high incomes are much lower than they've historically been. There's substantial revenue we can raise there. Two, we need to not have the cutoff that a lot of Democrats have had of we're not going to raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. We need to move that down. People making $100,000 and $400,000 and in between can pay higher taxes. And then three, I do think we need to grapple with the fact, and this is actually one of the things I talk about in the book, that our government is really increasingly a government geared toward health care and social security. And um, I don't think we're spending too much money on investments in the future. If anything, we're spending too little. The good news is those are relatively cheap. I do think we have to find a way in the long term to spend less money on health care and social security. All right. The recent debt deal that, was, uh, that solved us from defaulting on our debt that deal uh, basically didn't really touch 85% of the budget. So if you leave out 85% of the budget, there isn't much you can do with the National Endowment for Humanities or something. How much can you cut that compared to cutting other big serious programs? Right. That debt deal was a perfect encapsulation of how we're not grappling with our long-term fiscal problems, which is we took Medicare and Social Security off the table, um, uh, we took taxes off the table, and we basically tinkered around. Now, it's still good we did it because we don't want to default on the debt, but that is not a long-term solution. In the traditional Democratic view, and Barack Obama, when he ran for president the first time, said nobody under uh, $250,000 yeah. will have their tax increased. And then when he got in office, he realized 98% of the American people um, have income of 250000 or less. So only 2% of people left the tax. Same with, with Biden. He went to 400000 But it's how many people are above 400000 percentage? Uh, a small percentage, but a higher percentage of the income is right. above 400000 So you still can get meaningful revenue. But I, I think that's too high. Uh, that's okay. too high. When you look at the, the kind of trends in, in, in this country, the fundamental divide here is really between what you might describe as professionals and working class people. And those are imprecise, those are imprecise definitions, but they're also really useful and important ones. Um, and if you define professionals as people who have a four-year college degree and working class people who don't, that is the fundamental divide in American life. And I think we have to ask more of okay. professionals. So you're now 50 years old. I am 50 years old. This year you're 50 years old. Um, 
Some people, Steve Ratner was a New York Times economics correspondent, and he went to the dark side and became an investment banker, private equity. You know a lot about economics and business. Why did you not jump to the dark side? How come you're staying here? I don't know if it's the dark side, but it's so. I, I have this incredibly fortunate situation, which is I've always known what I wanted to do, even before I knew what I that I wanted to do. When I was in second grade, my friend Matt Smith and I created a daily, a weekly newspaper for our second grade class, and on, and on, the, and we called it Chess News, which gives you a sense of its focus. And on the back, we just plagiarized headlines directly from the Boston Globe. I lived in Newton, Massachusetts at the time, so it was one of the headlines was Iran Iraq War reaches. 400th day. And on the front, and this is an actual head headline,、um, we covered the news of our class. Don stubs toe, comma goes home early. <laughs> and so, for whatever reason, I have always. If you had asked me what I wanted to be at that time, I would have、right. said third baseman for the Red Sox. If you had asked me what I wanted to be in middle school or high school, I probably would have said a sports announcer. But basically. This is always what I've wanted to do,、okay. and I feel enormously fortunate for it. And so, I'm just going to keep doing it. Okay. So you get to be the editor in chief of the Yale Daily News, a very prominent position. A lot of famous people have had that. William F. Buckley Jr., among other people.、Um, sometimes people say that that's the peak of one's career. <laughs> you ever worried about that? Do you worry about that? <laughs> I do worry about that a little bit. I mean, high school and college journalism both have an, a wonderful intensity because you're covering the community that you live in. So when you criticize the administration,、um, you hear about it very quickly.、Um, uh, you also have the possibility to have an impact and make change. So you have really good feedback loops about your own mistakes,、um, and you also have good feedback loops in terms of when you write something they don't like and they complain about, but then they change what they were doing. You realize, eh, maybe we were right about that. And so,、um, uh, so I, I, I hope I've been able to do other things since then. But I actually. I think student journalism is an incredibly important part of. But you、lives. didn't feel any pressure to do something from your parents to go to law school or medical school or something important like that. Can I keep talking while you're doing?、Yeah. Um, I did not feel any pressure from my parents to go to law school. My、um, um, my mother at the time was a copy editor um, um, for medical journals, and so it was quite similar to what she、okay. did. And my dad was a high school teacher and high school administrator,、um, and so、um, I am very grateful to them that they told me that I should do what I want. Okay, so let's talk about this book.、Um, How do you be a, a daily journalist as you are and write a book like this? This book is,、uh, you know, it's pretty extensive, very detailed, very well researched.、Um, how do you have time to do that? I did not make my book deadlines.、Uh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. uh, that is the short answer. I spent nearly a decade on this,、um, and the and the the two answers to this are. It really is what I've been writing about for、okay. for most of the of the last twenty years, and I found ways over the last nearly ten years to carve out time. I spent time in the Minneapolis Historical Society. One, the first real story I tell in the book, except for my own family story, is the story of a trucker strike in Minneapolis in 1934 to talk about the rise of the labor movement in the 20th century. And I spent enormous amounts of time in Minnesota talking to people who knew people who'd been part of it, reading the archives, and so the combination. Of having many of the themes be connected to my day job at the times, but then also being able to carve out time in bits and pieces, and then I took a book leave to really. Okay,、finish. so let me summarize in one or two sentences what、Please. the book's about. The United States、uh, was the place where people believed in the American dream because our economy was rising very, very rapidly, and people could do well by working hard and getting to be part of the economic pie as it grew. But now, I think your point is. The economic pie is not growing quite as rapidly, and more importantly,、um, it's growing unfairly because we have a higher percentage of people at the bottom than we used to have. Is that the essence of your thesis? That is, and I have only a couple okay, slides. Okay, so we're done.、Um, <laughs> I'm not going to show many, but the, you just described this chart. Can everyone see this chart? Go ahead.、Chart? So what this chart does is it shows you by different income levels that well how incomes grew between 1946 and 1980. Those are the gray bars, and then、um, since 1980. And even if you can't quite see all the type, what you see is for every group, but the very richest group—that's at the top—the the gray bar, the richest two groups, the top one percent and top point zero one percent. The gray bars are all longer than the black bars, which means for the middle, the upper middle class, the middle class, and the and low income workers in this country, income growth was more rapid 
in the decades after World War II than it has been since 1980. It's not that it's been zero since then. Sometimes people on the left claim that there's been no income growth. That's wrong. Probably people on the right claim that as well. That's wrong. There's been some. But it is less than it used to be, and it is much, much less than the income growth has been at the top. And these are economic statistics. You can always fight over economic statistics. You can go to another panel this week at Aspen, where you'll hear that actually our economy is doing just great. And there have been no problems in the last few decades. And I welcome that kind of debate. The two things I would say are, three things I would say, the economic evidence overwhelmingly looks like this. IRS evidence, Census Bureau evidence, BLS evidence. You have to look really hard to find statistics that actually make the last few decades look good economically. The second of the three points is ask Americans how they feel. They agree that there's a huge problem. At no point in the last two decades, regardless of whether a Democrat or a Republican was president, regardless of whether we were in expansion or recession, has a majority of Americans said the country was on the right track. At no point. And then the final thing, and I actually think this is kind of the home run, in a way my book is all an attempt to, to explain this chart. This is the most alarming chart you can find about American life today. This is every high-income country in the world. There's no cherry-picking here. I didn't label the gray lines. Japan is on there, France is on there, Canada is on there. If you go back to the beginning of that chart, which is 1980, living standards for the United States were a little bit below average for a rich country, but basically normal. And look at what has happened since 1980. We look uniquely bad, uniquely bad. Obviously, the diving lines at the end is COVID. But, but this is not a COVID story. And when I describe the fundamental divide in our society as being working class people and professionals, it's the stagnation among working class people that explains this chart. This is life expectancy after age 25 to get rid of the issues with kids. The trends are the same regardless. Look at that. I would guess almost everyone in this room is part of that top line. I am. I have a bachelor's degree. I don't have any other higher degrees. As we just reviewed, I'm a journalist, not a lawyer or a doctor. But the trends for us continue to look pretty good. They look the way they do in other countries. It's the trends for people without a bachelor's degree that are so, so dark. And that is sort of what I tried to write a book that answers the question, how did this happen? Well, well talking about the bachelor's degree, there's been a, a view in the United States of late in some circles that everybody shouldn't go to college, that they should get a, you know, they could be a, get a blue collar kind of uh, training, but they don't have to go to college, and that some people really aren't made for college. What do you think of that argument? So the first thing I would say mischievously is when you hear someone making that argument, ask them if they think it applies to their kids as well or just other people's kids, right? And, and the, the second thing I would say less glibly is that's a serious argument. We shouldn't have everybody in our society getting a four-year college degree. We don't need that. And we need to develop pathways for people to build good lives with that one. I think the two things to say are we should make it easier for people to get bachelor's degrees, but the bigger thing is we should make it easier to have a good life in this country if you don't have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And by the way, my point on that generally is that the assumption is that if you get a bachelor's degree, it's only to get a job and that we should be looking at college as a way to educate uh, our citizenry about more than just how to get a job. And so when you kind of say to somebody, you don't need to get a college, you're saying you don't need to be an educated person. And I think it's unfair on, uh, in my view, but yeah. anyway. Well, it's part of the, I assume like me, you lament the decline in humanities. Uh, well, correct. For example, today, the, the percentage of people majoring in history in the United States at colleges is 2%. Yeah. It used to be 7 or 8%. And uh, in, 19, in 2000, uh, the National Science Foundation had a, a study that was led by Norm Augustine, a very distinguished person, and they came up with a great uh, acronym called STEM, Science, uh, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And the idea was you have to have a STEM degree to get a great job, and as a result, all the kids are being pressured by their parents to get STEM degrees, and nobody wants to major in social sciences, unfortunately. So I think the social science people need to have their own acronym. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> let, let's talk about this. The, American, the, this. the subtitle is The Rise and Fall of the American Dream. And in your book, you do mention who came up with the yeah. phrase, the American dream first. So it's a writer who came up with it, and is that one of your charts? It is. Okay. And... Um, there it is. There it is. Thank you, David, for asking that. So, um, yeah, actually, originally the, the subtitle of my book was a biography of the American dream. Um, uh, 
but Random House, I think, correctly thought they wanted something a little more specific. So we went, they went with the rise and fall of the American dream. But I really did set out to write a biography of the American dream. And I love this story about this book. So James Truslow Adams um, was, um, in the early decades of the 20th century, was a very successful Wall Street trader. Um, and he did well enough that he was able to go off and become an independent historian and write history books without having to have a university appointment and a university salary. And in 1921, he wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize. It was a history of colonial America. In 1931, he wrote this book. It was intended to be a single-volume history of the United States. Um, uh, it's his best-known book, and it coins the phrase, the American dream. If you do an archival search for, you, you, it occasionally pops up in newspapers before that, but not in the way we mean it today, right? I mean, sometimes it's just almost happenstance that American, you know, came before dream. This is really the beginning of the phrase, and here's how he defined it. Um, one of the book's main themes he wrote, and now I'm quoting him, would be that American dream of a better, richer, and happier life for all our citizens of every rank, which is the greatest contribution we have as yet made to the thought and welfare of the world. And I love that for a couple reasons. One, this is the start of the, of the phrase American dream. It, two, it really gives you a sense that although American dream has many meanings, it can mean home ownership, it can mean immigration, people play off of it. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is playing off the idea of an American dream. Um, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream is playing off the idea of an American dream. But the core definition of the American dream is progress. It's doing better than people who came before you, and particularly your parents. Listen to those words. Better, richer, and happier. And then the other thing I love about this is, I told you his first book came out in 1921. I told you this book came out a decade later. You can probably do the math. This book came out in 1931, near the nadir of the Depression. And yet he had this incredibly optimistic view of the United States that turned out to be a prophetic view of the United States. It was, in fact, the case that over the decades that followed, life for the vast majority of Americans, of all races, was better, happier, and richer. In the decades after World War II, not only did pay for the middle class grow more than it did for the rich, the black-white wage gap shrunk. The black-white life expectancy gap shrunk. And my title is actually a play on a quote that ends this book, he quotes Mary Anton, who is an immigrant writer in Boston who's sitting on the steps of the Boston Public Library. Her family has moved from Russia, escaping the pogroms, and she proclaims, mine is the shining future. And so, Adams quotes that. How many people here, when they were growing up, believed in the American dream? Okay, wow. How many of you think your children believe in the American dream? Okay. But turns out, I think, uh, I'll be asking if this is true, People in the bottom of the socioeconomic strata in the United States now don't believe in the American dream so much. Compared to people who live overseas, we have 50 million people who've immigrated to this country. They seem to believe more in the American dream than people born here who are often in, in lower socioeconomic classes. Is that fair? Is that true? I think it is true. And I also think there is actually, sadly, some basis in reality for both of those views. Um, uh, the the The... Immigrants who've come to this country in the last few decades continue to do extremely well. Um, there's a wonderful book out. Unlike mine, it's actually out now. It's called Streets of Gold by two economists, and they compare the trajectories of the immigrants of the last half century, who are overwhelmingly Latino and Asian American, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, with the trajectory of immigrants who came sooner, who are overwhelmingly European, and the trajectories are remarkably similar. So immigrants are right to believe in the American dream, and, and when we look at some of those charts I put up before, people who are in the lower half of, of the economic spectrum in this country are right to feel pretty frustrated. Well, um, sometimes people would say the whole Trump phenomenon is playing on the sense that the American dream isn't really available to some of the people who are the Trump supporters. They have uh, their, they've seen their jobs go away because of globalization. They think that uh, racial minorities are becoming more important in the society and so forth. Do you think that the Trump phenomenon to some extent reflects the fact that some people don't believe in the American dream anymore? They want, to, they want it to exist, but they think it really has gone away from them. Yes. I think both halves of what you have said are important parts of the Trump phenomenon. And I think it's enormously difficult to try to tease out the two. So I think the first thing that is very important to say 
is Donald Trump, not only as a candidate and as president, as ex-president, but for most, much of his career, um, has said dozens of racist things. Right? Donald Trump, uh, he, I grew up in New York in the 1980s, uh, after we moved from Boston. Um, uh, this was part of Donald Trump's shtick with the Central Park Five. Um, uh, and so is Donald Trump a racist? Absolutely. Does that, does that aspect of his personality and his persona appeal predominantly? Is that the main appeal to him, of him to some people? Absolutely. Is it the only appeal to him? Absolutely not. And I think that is one of the mistakes that, that progressives have made. That is not the only appeal of conservatism of Donald Trump. And it is, I think, deeply insulting to large numbers of people to say the only way you could have these views are if you are bigoted. The only way you could be conservative. And if you, if you doubt that, as I know some progressives do, I would ask you to reflect on the fact that in the last five years, every major group of voters of color has shifted to the right. Black voters have shifted ever so slightly to the right, and Latino and Asian American voters since 2018 have shifted substantially to the right. They are still majority Democratic constituencies, but much less than they were five right. years ago. If the entire appeal of the Republican Party was racism, that is a really hard phenomenon to explain. I noticed you used the word progressive. Why are progressives unwilling to use the word liberal? Oh, so I think there are two issues there. That's, you know, I, so I, in a book about economic history, liberal is a really fraught word, right? Because Milton Friedman said, I'm not a conservative, I'm a liberal. And so there is a, and there's the whole notion of neoliberalism, which I talk about in some detail. And so liberal just has these two meanings, the kind of European meaning and the American meaning. I think that's not why people on the left right. don't like the word. They don't like the word because in the 1980s it, it became unpopular and so they, they were looking right. for an alternative. So, um, well, you prominently mentioned in your book uh, a university where I'm the board chair now and the president is here. Uh, Paul Alvisados is the president of University of Chicago and uh, he is a Greek immigrant to our country and uh, one of our leading, and the world's leading chemists. Thank you very much for coming, Paul. And uh, you mentioned the University of Chicago repeatedly here, um, but you're not a University of Chicago graduate. I'm not. So was there University of Chicago envy? Why, you, why did you mention <laughs> it so much? <laughs> I, do, I do have great envy for the University of Chicago. If you were on the last panel that the president and I were on, I, I think you heard some of my deep respect for it. So the University of Chicago was the center of an intellectual movement to move us toward a different kind of capitalism. Um, Milton Friedman is the obviously best known figure. The figure who I spend the most time on in the book is Robert Bork, who is a fascinating character. And I devote maybe two paragraphs to the part of Robert Bork's story that we all know, and that I knew before I wrote the story. And I devote much, much more to Bork's growing up. I find Bork to be a fascinating character. I, someone who has read an early copy of the book said to me, boy, I really don't like Robert Bork, and boy, I liked him more after reading your book, which I, liked, I, loved, I loved hearing. But he's not a hero of the book. Um, uh, Robert Bork and Milton Friedman and the University of Chicago economists offered a set of diagnoses about what ailed the United States economy in the 1960s and 70s that was partially correct. And that is part of why they were able to achieve power. But they also made a set of promises about what would happen if we reoriented the economy in the ways that they said. And I'm not saying the United States economy became the vision that Milton Friedman had, but it moved closer to that vision than nearly any other country in the world. And yet, the results never came close to what Bork and Friedman promised. Think back to that chart I showed you about living standards. 1980 does not look like the beginning of a golden age of, American, of life for the American economy. If anything, it looks like a turning point in the other way. And so I try to assess what did the University of Chicago School get right and wrong, and I think they got more wrong than right. Okay, let's suppose um, that uh, you come to a member of Congress, that Congress, when this book comes out, I'm sure members of Congress will read it. They read all these books that come out about <laughs> policy. So they read it and they say, okay, you, you've prescribed the problem uh, accurately. We, we understand the economy's not growing as much, and there's uh, income disparity that's greater than before. Uh, what should we do about it? So what's your prescription? What can we realistically do to solve the problem you talk about in this book? I, I will answer the question, I promise. I also try to be more diagnostic um, oh. than offer prognosis because, um, because it's a history. But I will, but I will okay. answer the question. And as you know, I well, do that's somewhat. why you're not in Congress. So it, it is. I, so, but I want to I say I have great humility around my answers, right? I, I, so I would ask them to look at the fact. I would ask them to think about the idea of political power. 
Um, the, the years of rapidly rising wages for people um, without a college degree occurred in this country when labor unions were a really important part of our economy. And I know labor unions aren't perfect. I was in one, and it sometimes frustrated, frustrated me. I'm now in management at the New York Times, and our labor union sometimes frustrates me. So I understand they're not perfect. But if you want to think about what does an economy look like when ordinary people don't have the bargaining power to try to get better wages, it looks like the economy that we had before the 1930s. It looks like the economy that led to, to the excesses of the Great Depression. And it looks like our highly unequal economy today. So I would say the labor unions of the future can't look like the labor unions of the past. They have to be different. But we have to have a system in which ordinary Americans can have bargaining power to, to bargain. And I would note, if you think that is a progressive or liberal view exclusively, there's a fascinating new report that's just come out this week from Oren Cass, who's spoken here at Aspen, and the group American Compass. They put on an event that was attended by Marco Rubio, by Tom Cotton, um, by J.D. Vance. And what these conservatives say are, for the economy to function, we need to have a significant and strong organized labor movement in our country. They don't want it to look like the current organized labor movement. But the idea that our economy can't be broadly prosperous, in which ordinary people don't have negotiating power, I think is crucial. It's not the only thing I would put on the list, but that would absolutely be well, on the list. show the decline, uh, I think when I worked in the White House in, let's say, the late 70s, about 25% of the workforce was unionized. Now it's maybe 12%, 10%, something like that. What is the unionization percentage yeah. now? We've got a chart. Okay. How many people here have been a member of a labor union? This doesn't look like a labor union crowd, but uh, okay, all right, okay, all right. Okay, okay so this, uh, the top line there, uh, the bottom line is exactly what you were just talking about, David. It's the share of um, okay. U.S. workers and unions. That's all workers, private sector, public sector. Um, uh, and you see um, it peaks up around a third um, in okay. 1940. That was because of the Roosevelt administration's ways that essentially recognized people's ability to bargain and, and ability to strike. The right to strike was largely non-existent in the United States until the New Deal. That's why I tell that story in Minnesota about the trucker strike. And then World War II really hammers at home because Roosevelt says to corporate America, hey, if you want these wartime contracts, um, uh, you need to recognize labor unions. And he also says to labor unions, you can't strike during, during the war. Um, and then um, it, it remains high and then starts to kind of gradually decline. The reason I show this chart is obviously it's not a perfect relationship with the share of income earned by the bottom 90% of workers because lots of things are going on. But boy, you can see similar patterns there, right? I mean, the, the, they rise on roughly the same timetable ta time and they fall on broadly the same timetable. So um, you, you use your, in your book, you write about a lot of interesting people, some of whom are reasonably well-known, some are not as well-known. So can you just talk about one or two of the most fascinating people that you write about that people might not know as much about as they should? Yes. Um, that's my favorite question. So um, it's like I have to choose between my children now. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So let me talk briefly about A. Philip Randolph, who is um, uh, seated in the middle there. Um, the most recognizable person in that slide is John Lewis. Um, a young um, John Lewis, uh, who you all can probably see is standing in the kind of foreground. For us, it's on Randolph's right. Um, a. Philip Randolph was a successful Harlem street preacher in the 1920s, known as being um, extremely charismatic, identified at the time as a socialist. Um, and um, uh, some labor unions that were trying to organize black workers at the time had heard him speaking out on the corner of Lenox Avenue and said, hey, you'd be a good leader for our union. And so they recruited him to be the head of the union. Um, and, and the main one he headed was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And so this was the union that was trying to organize the um, overwhelmingly black workers, uh, men who worked as porters on the Pullman trains, women who worked as maids. This was low-wage work in which black Americans were expected to be subservient to the wealthy people taking Pullman cars um, who were often expected to grovel, um, who had to pay out of their own low wages for the shoe polish that they used. Um, these were as powerless a set of workers as you can imagine in the American economy. And A. Philip Randolph took on the Pullman Company. Um, at various times during this period, the Pullman Company had on its board J.P. Morgan. It had Alfred Sloan. It had members of the Vanderbilt and Whitney, Whitney families. Um, uh, so who was favored to win this fight? 
Um, uh, and um, for much of the 1920s and 30s, sure enough, um, the Pullman Company won and won and won, and A. Philip Randolph lost and lost and lost to the point where it, the Harlem headquarters of the union couldn't pay their rent uh, and their furniture was thrown out on the sidewalk. But eventually, um, the United States government, uh, the Roosevelt administration, and, and after some reluctance, the Supreme Court, um, uh, codified the right of people to organize, and particularly of railroad workers to organize. And um, immediately after the Supreme Court decision codifying that, the Pullman Company for the first time began to negotiate, um, and the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters won a contract that delivered big raises and better working conditions to both porters and maids. And to me, this is important because it highlights the central role that labor unions play, but it's not just about labor unions. Randolph then used this union as the basis really to create the civil rights movement. And I think we've lost a little bit to history just how important Randolph and the Porters were to the civil rights movement. Just one more thing on this. So in 1940, Randolph decided to plan a march in Washington. He called it the March on Washington. Uh, and this march was meant to insist that the United States integrate the armed forces and integrate its wartime factories. They understood that the U.S. had a major PR problem. They were claiming to fight for democracy while enforcing racial segregation and autocracy at home. And Randolph went into the Oval Office, and FDR said, you must cancel this march. Your people will get hurt. The great scene at the beginning that I tell in the book is FDR, uh, Randolph walks into the office and FDR says, you went to Harvard too, didn't you? because um, Randolph spoke like someone who went to Harvard. Um, Randolph didn't have a college degree. Um, uh, um, and, and, and FDR said, you must cancel this march. And Randolph understood that he had amassed enough grassroots power to defy the president of the United States. They just re-elected FDR, and he said, Mr. President, we are not canceling this march until you issue an executive order. Um, FDR backed down realizing that Randolph was going to go ahead with the, with the march. The compromise was they didn't integrate the armed forces. They did integrate wartime factories. That was a major reason that the, white, the black-white wage gap shrunk. This wasn't the only way that the porters helped um, seed the civil rights movement. Um, it was the local leader of the Pullman porters in Montgomery, Alabama, who decided we need to launch a campaign to integrate buses. The first two people who got arrested for buses, the local leader said, they're not good. Um, they both have arrests on their history. We don't want them to be the poster child. The third person they decided was a perfect person to make this fight. You can probably guess that her name was Rosa Parks. When she was arrested, this local leader of the Montgomery Porters called a young local preacher and said, you should become part of this movement and help lead it. The young local preacher said, I'll think about it. Um, he said yes a couple of days later, and that leads to the Montgomery bus boycott. And finally, the March on Washington, the name that Philip Randolph and the Porters came up with, with in 1940, they canceled it because FDR did what they wanted. They held it again 23 years later, and that's what you're looking at there. John, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, and I'm sorry, I'm talking to, but to me, what I would say is, this is, if you are cynical about democracy, think about Philip Randolph. Yes, our democracy has problems, but when you actually can build a grassroots movement that wins people over and that gets enough power, you can change the political system. And if you were cynical about any of our ability to make change, I would tell you we have better odds than Philip Randolph did when he took over the sleeping car porters. And that's why I think he's such a heroic figure. In your book, I think the way it, you stated was that uh, when Randolph goes in the Oval Office, uh, Roosevelt says to him, what class were you in Harvard? As if, of course you were in Harvard. How could you not have gone to Harvard? And what class were you in? And uh, I mean, was that a facetious statement or he didn't, he honestly was so clueless he didn't know? It was not a facetious okay. statement. And first of all, thank you for remembering my book better than me. That's incredibly <laughs> flattering. No, really. Um, uh, um, uh, I would say it's that I got in at 3 a.m., but it might just be the difference between you and me. Uh, it was not, it was, it was not facetious. And if you listen to Randolph speak and you can hear him speak, he somehow, he was from Jacksonville. Um, he then moved to New York, but he was the son of a preacher, and he somehow had this almost British affect that um, uh, I didn't go to Harvard, but you might associate with someone who did go to that institution. So, interestingly, uh, when the March on Washington does occur in 1963, John Kenney spends a lot of time trying to talk uh, the civil rights leaders out of doing this. And 
A. Philip Randolph is still involved, right? He's still involved. At this point, he's the senior figure. Right. He's not the key organizer. And so basically, during the first march, they had said, uh, what FDR tried to do is said, I'm going to bring in the executives of the wartime factories, and I'm going to tell them they really should integrate. And Randolph understood that this was... This, this had no teeth. It wasn't going to happen. Randolph said executive order or the march goes on. Um, by 63, they had decided executive orders weren't enough. They needed congressional legislation. And so JFK was offering to do more executive orders, and they said legislation or we march. Well, he was against the march, and then he refused to speak at the march. But after the speeches were over, he did invite them to the White House, and John Lewis turns out was only 23 years old at the time. It's hard to believe he was only 23 years old, but he was. Um, so uh, let me ask you about your book now. Um, in terms of going forward, to be realistic about what we can do, um, do you think Congress is the key to kind of changing legislation? Is it the private sector? Is it the business community? How are we going to bring about the changes that we can continue to, to grow at the pace we'd like to? And related to that, all civilizations ultimately decline. No civilization yes. goes on forever. So we've been the biggest economy in the world since 1870, more or less, and the dominant country in the world, so at least since World War I. Isn't it maybe it's our time to fade and the Chinese or the Indians are going to come forward? Why, do, why should we feel that we have some um, manifest destiny to continue for another 100 years or so to be the dominant country in the greatest economy? Um, there are two great questions in there. So to take your second one first. We're, the United States is not going to be the world's most powerful country forever, as you said. Um, but I would be very worried about a world in the short term in which we cede um, uh, power and influence to the other plausible countries that could take it over, specifically China. I am much more comfortable um, with our set of, of political traditions and our set of values and our beliefs than I am with China's. And so if this were a case in which uh, the great rising country today were India, and we had an Indian prime minister who was more committed to civil rights than Modi is, I would have a different view about how absolutely vital it is that the United States remain the preeminent. But I really do think that there is a sense in which we are, if democratic values are going to triumph, if market capitalism is going to triumph, the United States needs to remain. And that's why I think it's important that, that we do. I don't think it's inevitable, but I also think we really can do better than we're doing. Okay, so questions from right here. In addition to the labor union topic or um, recommendation, are there any lessons learned from the other countries that we should be doing? Yeah. Um, I won't tell long, as long stories about Philip Randolph about everybody. But um, uh, so that's um, Grace Hopper. You see sitting at the computer there, she's one of the most important computer scientists of the mid-20th century. Um, she largely wrote the language Cobalt. She there is working on a big computer called the Univac, um, uh, which um, with the, its first public use was basically the exact same thing that the New York Times needle now does. It was used on election night in 1952 to use um, geographically adjusted election results to give you a more accurate sense of who is going to win than the raw vote totals would. Um, and sure enough, it said Eisenhower was going to win in a landslide. Um, I think one of the other things that other countries have done better than us is figure out ways to invest in the future. We led the world in educational attainment for decades and decades and decades, actually well before the 1940s. That's a, a, initially a 19th century phenomenon. Um, it's sort of the first way we had mass prosperity in this country was, was through mass education. Um, and, and the other countries needed forever to catch up and now they've caught up and passed us by. They're actually having more of their folks graduate from what we would call community colleges and from four-year colleges. Um, in, in many ways, the most tangible way you experience this, um, I realize the vast majority of people in this room traveled to get here. How incredible is this? Travel in the United States today is slower than it was a half century ago. And you're that, just saying that because you came, came in late. I might morning. just be bitter, right. that is true. But, it, it, the flight time from L.A. to New York is longer than it was at the dawn of the jet age. The, Why is that? The, because technology for airline travel hasn't changed that much, because, and because of air traffic has gotten so much worse, and we haven't invested in a, a better air traffic system um, uh, or in... in, in we have, we've, it, there may be some technological boundary there, but the train trip 
the Acela takes longer than the original Metroliner did when it launched between New York and Washington. Um, traffic is worse than it used to be. And so, so many parts of getting around, we've gone, this isn't a merely an idea of progress slowing, we've gone backwards. And you could say, well, we can't get faster forever. That's true. But this stagnation in, in moving around, which is in some ways one of the most basic forms of economic activity, has not happened in other countries. It, you can get around other countries more quickly than you used to in the past. And what, so I think that's another What's lesson. happened is uh, people have private planes, they get here more quickly, and so that's, that's uh, symblem, uh, sim, I would say emblematic of the situation, whereas the wealthier people are able to do things that the middle class can't do. Exactly. And actually, and so that's a, that's a particularly good example because for commercial air travel, you used to be able to show up at the airport 15 minutes before your flight and, and, and do it. And I, even if we're agnostic about whether that system was better or our security system was better, like the amount of lost time, whereas private jet travel has sort of um, replicated that system that used to exist in the past. Okay, uh, Gary? There's the mic right there. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so over time, very few people could travel on private planes. I mean, versus commercial. So I don't really view that as a yes as a as a, a as a linchpin point. But what about stock market participation and home ownership declines for the people who you know? Is that to me that would be is a major cause of inequality? The inability to be in the stock market or the inability to have home ownership. Does your book talk about that? Yes. So, first of all, I would just say uh, there is a piece of progress in air travel, which is the one you highlighted, which is more people do it than in the past. But it is still the case that, that life has slowed down, movement has slowed down, even for middle class people, especially for middle class people, because of things like traffic, because of things like lack of investment in public transit. So it's not the case that the, tra the travel has sped up for the middle class because more of them can, can fly. But that is an important caveat. Um, yes, I put up the trends in income and in life expectancy. Um, I could have also put up the trends in many other things. The trends in wealth, which you just cited, are actually even starker than the trends in, in income. So the chart I put up with those bars showing how much income inequality has grown, wealth inequality has grown more. And wealth inequality is particularly bad by race. And so, so the racial wealth gap is vastly larger than, than the racial income gap. Um, and to advertise uh, another Aspen panel, um, uh, the wealth, the wealth gap and thinking about wealth as a measure will become particularly important if the Supreme Court rules as we expect on affirmative action. Hey, um, back here in the green shirt, uh, back here behind you, or behind you. Okay, then, then you, thanks. Thank you. Um, appreciate the uh, presentation this morning. Wondering why 1980, and specifically as you referenced stagnation uh, in travel, I mean, I see the same thing in being able to build housing, or innovation in many other sectors as we talk about education this morning. And why do you choose 1980 as the threshold? Uh, as a person who was born in 1980, I was wondering if that, you know, if, if there's anything specific about that year. So the data chooses it. When you look at the trends, it's the data that shows that there's this pivot point. And to be fair, you could choose 1975. It doesn't have to be 1980. Um, um, and so, um, so what happens, a couple things happen during that time. We have this incredible shock in oil prices, right, which really damages American growth. Um, and the shock in oil prices is not just temporary in 1973, it really endures. And so that acts as a drag on growth, and that really hits everyone, but in a percentage basis, it hits people at the bottom more. And then the second thing that happens is the way we try to deal with that shock is, is we make this shift. Um, in which we start investing less in the future of our country. And we really start, the, the government becomes much more aggressive about shrinking labor unions. And I think, and this is one thing we haven't talked about here, but in some ways it's the best subject actually, in some ways for this audience, which is the, court, the culture of corporate America changes around that time. And it becomes a less patriotic, less communitarian culture. I'm not gonna tell you the long story, but the gentleman there talking to Ike is Paul Hoffman, who led this movement of corporate executives in the 1940s that said, we need to care more about broad-based 
workplace prosperity in this country. We need to care more about the, the community of America. And starting around then, we moved to a more individualistic ethos that really affected things like outsourcing and executive pay. And so it's a complex set of things. 1980 is not magical. If you wanted to pick 1973 or 1982, you could make arguments. But it's somewhere in there that that data really starts to show a change in income, wealth, life expectancy. In 80 was when Reagan was elected and, and really changed many things in the way that the political world worked and so forth, I, I thought. But uh, yes. Uh, okay. All right here. Yes. Why, why has union membership declined so dramatically and steadily over the period you showed? And what are the biggest changes you would suggest to the unions of the past for the ones in the future? And lastly, does technology, things like Glassdoor, play a role? Yeah, so I, part of the thing, it's clear that global trade has played a big role in the decline of, of unions. Um, uh, but one of the things that's interesting to me, and, and sorry, but I think the most important thing is the government fundamentally changed its attitude. Union membership was near zero until FDR and his administration, somewhat against their, they really had to be pushed on this. It wasn't FDR wanting to do this. It was a movement, as with Randolph, but the details are different, kind of forcing them to do it. Frances Perkins, the labor secretary, the first female labor secretary in American history, played a key role here. So, so unions were tiny, they were minuscule. When you have a fight between workers and management in which no one intervenes, management almost always wins. The only way it becomes somewhat equal, it can become unfair on behalf of workers, but the only way it can become somewhat equal is if government intervenes and tries to make it possible for workers to bargain collectively. Through the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, we had that starting around the 70s and 80s, the government becomes even more aggressive about pushing back. The thing I would say about the future is we are moving toward a service economy. Large numbers of Americans say they want to belong to labor unions. Not everybody, but many, many more people than are in them. The combination of those two things mean it is possible to have a stronger labor movement than we do. Because unlike manufacturing jobs, service jobs, it is much harder for them to uproot and move to a lower wage country. And so we could have a stronger labor movement. It is a policy choice that we are making not to have one. By the way, you mentioned Frances Perkins, the first female to serve in a cabinet. She was labor secretary under FDR. I didn't realize that you put in your book that she had a different name. Yeah. Why did she change her name? She was born Fanny Perkins. And what was when, wrong with the name Fanny? Well, she, I think she thought Frances, she wanted to be taken seriously. She wanted to be Fanny seen. Fanny wouldn't be taken seriously. She, I, 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 she wanted to be seen as someone who was going to be a progressive activist, and she was enormously successful. And so after she graduated college, she changed her name. All right, we have time for one more question. Uh, here, what here? The title of of this is how to reinvigorate the American dream. Yes. The first thing you talked about was taxes. We are in a situation where there's so much divisiveness with the government, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So what are other things that corporations can do and the average American can do to help create that dream? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's perfect for this slide, and it's a nice note to end on. Culture is very difficult to talk about because it's very hard to change. Um, it's sort of amorphous why it changes, and yet it matters enormously. And we have gotten to a point, let's set aside government for a second, in the private sector, in which it is acceptable not for, it is in fact the norm for companies not to behave in particularly patriotic or communitarian ways. The other people you see here are George Romney and his son Willard, who's better known as Mint. And I tell their stories in the book as, as well, because I consider them both to be extremely honorable people. Um, I don't think one of them is more honorable than the other. George Romney turned down bonuses when he was the president of American Motors because he considered it unseemly to make so much money. I don't think he did that because he was a better person than any of us are. He did that because there was a culture forged by people like Paul Hoffman, who you see talking to Ike, who said, corporate America needs to care about our living in a high-wage economy that produces broad prosperity. And that culture then fed on itself. And it meant that companies didn't outsource all their jobs. And they paid some of their lowest-wage workers, like janitors, more than the market absolutely dictated they needed. 
and executives accepted less money than they could have made, as in the case of George Romney. And so I think one of the most important things for all of us, if we are on the privileged end, that's an overused word today, but if we're on the privileged end of those divides that you saw, if we're among those college graduates who are making more money than our parents were, as I do, who are likely to live longer than our parents did, it's to remember that the progress that we've experienced and, and the version of the American dream that we've been able to live is actually the exception for huge numbers of people, including in entire communities across the country. And so whatever the specifics are, just thinking about the fact that you, however you much you may agree with them or disagree with them on, on, on individual political topics, however much you may lament some of their views toward things like democracy, Americans really do have a reason to be frustrated, and I think we owe it to this entire country to think about how we can create a broader version of prosperity that is the version of this country that worked so well for so many decades. I forgot to mention at the introduction that you are the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for your commentary. <laughs> is this book going to win a Pulitzer as well? That, that is not up to me. All right, so fine, <laughs> Prob final, probably fine. not, the odds would say. Final question for you is, I am worried about the issues you, you talk about in your book, but I, my observations, I've gotten older, the bigger problem is gravity is getting stronger. Are you worried about that problem? Gravity is just getting stronger. You think that's a big problem in the United States, or we shouldn't worry about that so much? I, I, I feel like because you're so focused on it, the rest right. of us yeah. can, can okay. a little bit leave that, All right. let you specialize. Thank you very much. David. It's a great book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. David Leonhardt is a senior writer for the New York Times, where he writes the daily newsletter, The Morning. Previously at the Times, he was an op-ed columnist, Washington bureau chief, and a staff writer for the Times Magazine. Leonhardt won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary for his columns on the financial crisis and its aftermath. His book, Ours Was the Shining Future, was published last month. David Rubenstein is co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group private investment firm. He previously practiced law, was a domestic policy advisor to President Carter, and was chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. His latest book is The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.